I think you would agree with me that it would have been quite easy and very natural if I'd spent all our time on the epistle to the Ephesians. So that is the goal of all my witness and that which sums up all my standing and hope. But there's another aspect and that is balance. And I've met any amount of unbalanced Christians. You may have met them too. In fact, they may be sitting on the very seat that you're occupying at this moment. (laughs) The thing to remember is that one scripture by itself or nothing relative. If I were to say the words Los Angeles well nobody moves nobody says hallelujah nobody calls me names because I haven't said anything I haven't related it to anything. If I told you one word that I thought about Los Angeles well then you'd all be delighted or you'd be you see I must relate and all truth is first of all seeking a correct relationship and then when you've done that you relate it to other people and that's making it known. So in spite of the fact that this is our last meeting and I want to come to the epistle to the Ephesians and take various aspects of it I'm still trying to strike a balance that all truth is essential to us as surely as Ephesians is essential to us. So this rather crazy structure on the board is supposed to represent a temple. I didn't like the look of it after I'd stood back, but I thought, well, uh, we're not an art school, so good enough. Now, you know as well as I do, if you turn to Psalm 119, you know that you have a psalm which is broken up into a whole series of verses, stanzas, and over the top of those stanzas, we have rather strange-looking words. Psalm 119. We have the word olive. Then the next lot, bet. Then gibble. Then dolly. Well, they, of course, are the first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. When the Greeks picked them up, they didn't say olive, beth, gibble, dolly. They said alpha, beta, gamma, delta. And when we pick them up, we say A, B, C, D. We put a C instead of a G. It's come right over down. Well, now, Josephus and other writers, Josephus particularly, He said that every Israelite, practically from the moment of his birth, has set his seal to the fact that there are 22 books in their scriptures, neither more nor less, and they would rather die than have that number altered. 22, you say? I thought there were more. You see, we speak of the 66 books of the Bible. That's an ominous number, isn't it? I wonder why God picked 66 out. Well, he didn't. We've done that. Now, we're not going to lose a book. But don't you see, these books in the original were not flat books like this. They were rolls. And if you've picked up a roll of the prophet Isaiah, you've got enough to carry. So, all the minor prophets, 12 of them, 12 of them were made into one roll. So you call that one. Well, you you lose 11 figures, don't you? You don't lose 11 books. So there's 11 gone. There's only one. And by the time you've put them down, just as the Hebrew scrolls were, you get this result. Now, I'm not going to take long, but you do know, here's the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Or if you're very particular, Deuteronomy. But I, I get tangled up with Deuteronomy. So, Deuteronomy. <laughs> well, there's the, that's the books of the law. Then we have the prophets. Joshua, 
judges now, Ruth comes in back. Little Ruth. They didn't make a scroll. All the paraphernalia make a scroll with just four chapters. No. Just a little bit. Pass on to the end of judges. It belongs to it. Joshua, judges. I better save my uh, memory. I've, I've got a memory like a sieve. That is to say, I don't keep anything in it that I don't want. Some people cover it all up. Uh, the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, Isaiah, oh no, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and now the twelve minor prophets. There's your prophets. Now we have, you see, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now the, the reason why this lot is called the Psalms is because the Psalms are put first. And that gives the name to the law. These are the poetic and wisdom books. So we have the Psalms, Job, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Esther, Nehemiah and Ezra both together. Um, where have we got now? Ecclesiastes. Oh, and Daniel is put in this lot. He's not allowed to be in the prophet. You know why? Because he was a prisoner of the law for the Gentiles. And the Jews didn't like that. He didn't like Jonah either because he went to Nineveh. You see? And so they said, did any prophet come out of Galilee? Jonah did. Well, they didn't like him. So he's up here. And then we have Chronicles. Now that's the history book. That's the, that begins with the word Adam. Adam. Goes right through Israel's history until you get the last king. And as I said this afternoon or the other evening, no less on the last page. Well, that's the Old Testament. <laughs> now you, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Acts. The historic books of the New Testament. Now we have the epistles. And the epistles, first of all, of the circumcision, as they're called. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, uh, James. I'm going to put a lot of J's now. Jude, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. They are seven epistles. That is followed by Paul's epistles, written before Acts 28. And now, those who don't believe Hebrews, well, they've got a poor old temple with one of these things broken. And they don't know what to do with it. So, I'm going to leave it there. So, we have Galatians. We have um, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We have Hebrews. We have 1 and 2 Corinthians, and we have Romans. Galatians says, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews says, the just shall live by faith. Romans says, the just by faith shall live. Those three basic epistles. This one, 1 Thessalonians, speaks of the work of faith, the labour of love, the patience of hope. And the last chapter has got the six words in it, if you like to search for them. The work, the labour, the patience, the love, the hope, the faith. All together. The first of Corinthians says, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. Did you notice I didn't say now abide? The poor unauthorised version sits up there. Because if you say now abide, faith, hope and love, you say just say, well you know that they're wrong. Now abide. They, 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 uh, I didn't consult me about it, I suppose, there it was. Now, two Thessalonians is a corrective. They were wrong with regard to their hopes, so he begins to put them right. 
Oh, don't you be moved away because of this. Now this Sunday coming. There's a corrective. Here we have the deception. The man of sin. The son of perdition. The lying miracles. Here we have, I fear next Satan to the beguiled. You're always coming right again, you see. So those epistles. Now Acts 28 is followed by Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, 1 and 2, Timothy, Titus and Philemon. I haven't put that Philemon in its right order, but that doesn't matter for the most. And then we have on the top here, we must have little capitals up the top here, we have the seven churches of the book of the Revelation, and then we have the Revelation itself. Now then, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 7, 7. Now I like that better, don't you? It doesn't matter whether I like it or not, but it seems as though that's what we ought to realise. Now there's the temple of truth. There's the whole word of God. And we've not left one out, we've simply put it down exactly as they had it in the beginning. Now while we've got that figure of a temple there, this is only just a bit thrown in, because this is our last meeting and there's all sorts of things crying out for consideration. You notice in the Acts of the Apostles toward the close, there was a temple at Ephesus, there was an awful riot, and then in the very, very place where the structure demands it, there's a temple at Jerusalem and an awful riot and Paul's involved in both of them. As much as to say, God says, there's no difference now in my estimation of the temple at Ephesus with its idolatry and the temple at Jerusalem for our Lord had said, your house is left unto you desolate. You're getting very near the end in the Acts when that takes place. Because if you were to go through the book of uh, Chronicles with one expression the house of God, or the house, God's house, you'll find that the whole history of Israel is linked with the references to that from beginning to end. But as we can't possibly do everything in one evening and the last nap, I'll just mention that without any further explanation. Well now, that hasn't taken a great deal of time, and I thought that I would like to put just a word before you with regard to the whole book a complete book, which we value so much. Well, now with regard to certain things that have been agitating the minds of God's people. Now, don't think I'm saying, and now the oracle is going to speak. I'm only a seeker like yourself. I may mistakes. But a man who never makes mistakes very seldom makes anything. But we sometimes have to come to certain conclusions and if those conclusions even though they need modifying afterwards help another, that's what we must do. Are all believers today members of the church which is the body of Christ? We won't bother about the word body for the moment. We'll just take that term as it stands. Some say yes. Every believer today, whether he believes it or not, is in the church of the mystery. Well, I say, how do I know anybody is saved even? 
I can't look into the book of life. I can't get access to the secret purposes of God. If you're going to ask me to come to a conclusion about anybody, I say, well, the only reason I believe so-and-so is a Christian is that he evidences that he believes the Son of God. Well, I should do the same with regard to this great ultimate truth enshrined in Paul's prison epistles. If I meet a person who denies the teaching that is therein contained, not only denies it, but fights against it, and does his utmost to prevent other people, I say I haven't got any evidence that that's his calling. I've got no evidence at all. I'm not saying he doesn't belong to it because I'm not the arbiter of his fate. I'm only saying so far as I'm concerned, I must treat him as I treat others and others treat me. He doesn't believe it. He doesn't want it. He hopes that nobody will believe it. He'd stop me if he could. And I say, after all said and done, he's a member of that body. Well, I don't see how that's logical. You see, we're not settling his destiny. God alone knows that. But we are dealing with evidence, and that's all we can do. Well, now, I think there's another approach to it. Will you turn to Matthew 22? Here the, the Lord gave a parable. And he spoke about a wedding for the king's son. Chapter 22. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. And again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Well, there may be many ways in which this, is, this can be interpreted, but at least it has a bearing upon that which immediately followed. The Son of God had been presented to these people as king. He was the son. A marriage was being arranged. And there had been an invitation. They refused. They wouldn't come. He said so. How often would I have gathered you and you would not? But instead of cutting them off, as God might have done, he sent again to the same people, this time saying all things are ready. At the first invitation, Christ hadn't died. But now Christ had died and raised again, and those who had been invited were given a second invitation. That's how it starts in the Acts of the Apostles. But they made light of it. And then they persecuted those who preached it. And AD 70, an army did come and burn up their city at the end of that people. Well now, even today, if a marriage had been arranged and invitations were sent out and it was all turned down and nobody came, it would be a dreadful insult, wouldn't it? The parents and the bride and the bridegroom would feel as though they'd been very badly treated. Well, in the East it's even more so. You know how our Saviour came to the rescue of a little 
the marriage at Cana, just to save their faith, just to save them from that, the bitter sort of feeling that they had been badly treated. Oh, by the way, this has nothing to do with our subject, but my last lap's got a lot in it. Have you met people who are rather worried about the Lord making, I think the average is about 250 gallons of wine at the end of a little village wedding? Have you? I've met people who work among certain down and out people who are given to drink and they keep reminding them, well don't you come and talk to me about it for your saviour made all those water pots full. Well now, that is because we do not speak the language that those people. Supposing I illustrate it this way. Somebody is coming to visit me from Austria. I'm hoping to go there again. Somebody's coming to visit me. He doesn't speak English very well, but he gets a book and he knows certain things in this country. He looks down. Yes, right. Uh, he's looked up the word, see, the meaning of the word. So, when he's sitting down in the drawing room, he ventures. He said, uh, you will give me another bucket of tea, yes? We say, bucket of tea? Well, we don't say, ah, he says, bucket, a receptacle for liquid, yes, No. I say, look, friend, that's the pitfall of any amount of people who interpret the Bible. They get a dictionary, but that's not the answer. It's usage. We don't use buckets. Now, the word which is used in that term, in that term, making the water the wine is, when he says, draw out now, there's only one meaning to it. He didn't say, take water out of those water pots. No, they'd been coming backwards and forwards with their bucket and used up 280 gallons of water from the well. Now, he said, everybody's certain that there's water in the well. It's nothing been doctored. Draw out now. That word is never used except drawing out of a well. John itself says, the woman says to the Lord, you have nothing to draw with. In the Old Testament, they draw water out of the wells of salvation, and the classical use uses it in only one other way, to take the bilge water out of a ship. Never used in the sense that this poor Austrian was using it. So, there was only one bucket of water turned into wine. Just enough for the blessing to be pronounced before they finished. How needful it is for us to be careful in our explanations and see that we've got the right meaning of our terms. Well, now, I didn't know I was going to throw that in this evening, but be prepared for anything, friends, because this is our, as we said, our last lap. <laughs> now then, when the, when the city has been burned up, is this wedding going to be spoiled? No. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. Well now, if my suggestion is at all worthy, after the destruction of Jerusalem, John wrote his gospel, a gospel that is addressed to the world and evidently envisages those who had no knowledge of Jewish things. Because, you see, when it says Rabbi, it stops to tell you it means Master. When it says Messiah, it stops to tell you that means the Christ. When it says he walked in the Feast of Dedication in the porch and it was winter, it tells you that. Now, so far as I'm concerned, I would never expect to find in a book it was Christmas Day and it was winter. But I did read a book once 
It says it was Christmas Day. And they spread the table out in the sunshine and sat... Oh, you see, where am I? Then I looked at the front and it was written in Australia. All right. Now, you see, all those little signs in the Gospel of John tell you that it was written to the world quite independently of relationship to Israel. Well, if that's the case, as far as I can see it, we've got a large outside circle like this. God so loved the world. No restriction. And then inside it, an elect company chosen before the foundation of the world running at the same time. Of course, if popes will make a dispensation into a period of time, then you can't have two periods of time running together. But if a dispensation is a stewardship, it is carried on in time, but Peter and John and James and Paul and Barnabas, they all had a stewardship given to them running at the self-same time. And it's possible and probable again. So I'm suggesting that if you're at all troubled about this question, of course, it, after long, uh, uh, long last, it, it doesn't rest with you, uh, but I think there is an explanation that there is a message to the wide world which has nothing to do with the church of the mystery and there is a smaller circle of those who were chosen and who see their place in God's good time. Well, now we'll, we'll see the board and we'll look at another one of these questions. Quite a number of friends have been rather worried uh, about the fact that they may seem to have lost or there is a danger of losing the title the church which is his body. I'm going to ask you a question for a moment. I don't mind if you answer it if anybody in the congregation cares to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 the apostle uses the word light. Would anyone tell me what is the opposite of the word light? Darkness? No. The light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. If you'd have said weight, I'd have said no. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. <laughs> Don't you see, friends, what I'm pointing out? All words are relative. You don't know what light means till you know whether the opposite is darkness or weight. Well now, here we have a, a word translated so many times in our version, body. That's going to stand for quite a number of ideas. Take this one. A Colossians chapter 2, 17. Colossians 2, 17. He says in verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or the new moon, or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, that doesn't refer to the church which is his body. We've got the word shadow. So it's shadow over against body. Well, body there means the reality. Substance, if you like. Now I come to chapter 2.19 and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands now joints and ligaments as the word bands I'm faced with, an, uh, with a body that's got limbs 
members. Well, the easiest thing and the simplest thing is to say, that is the body that I possess, or you possess, a figure. In 1 Corinthians 12, you're not left to guess. It says, this distribution of spiritual gifts, all coming from the same source, can be illustrated by an ordinary human body. Just as in the body, there is hands and feet and so on, so in the distribution of these gifts, they're all sorts, but they're all coming from the self-same source. God has set different members, God has set miracles and so on. So that I think you need not be stampeded. Don't shut your eye to a truth, because it seems to take away the word body from one place. You need to take the the word body away from another place. You can have the body of sin. This body of death. We can speak about a body of truth. But it doesn't alter the fact, at least so far as I'm concerned, Ben, I don't know about you, it doesn't alter the fact that I've got a body and it's got many members. And they're all, I hope, functioning. Well, now somebody says, oh, but are you not going to tell me that the church is to be likened to a body or is a body? And then they exaggerate it and make you pretend that you're... No, no. The Lord uses figures. Supposing we forget about the body. There's another company called the Bride. Well, what are you going to do about that? A Bride. And if it's composed of believers, it's composed of both men and women, and they're all a Bride. So you can get tangled over that if you like. And then some of these people are sheep. Most of them are, in many ways. You, you, know the, you know the inspector in the school, he said, now, in the field, there were 20 sheep. And one of them went through a hole in the hedge. How many left? 19, sir. No, none. They all followed the other one. <laughs> all we like sheep. Yes. Well, now, we're going to say, oh, you couldn't possibly call anybody sheep because we don't grow wool, we grow hair. Trouble is with most of us, we see a truth and we get so enthusiastic over it that everything must go by the board. And then the other person, instead of saying, being reasonable, he says, I won't believe a word of it. But I believe the scripture teaches that the word body means a substance. Sometimes. But a body means what we mean by a body. Sometimes. With a head. And with members. And then I think we've lost our, lost the most important part. There never has existed yet a complete company of this church, has there? Paul belonged to it. I belong to it. And a number of people in between have belonged to it. It never has existed as a complete company on earth. And it's therefore a convenient figure. We are related to Christ as the head is to a human body. That's all. With its members. You can't eliminate the word members. They're there. And joints and ligaments. And in Ephesians 4, it uses other figures which we might supplement. Ephesians 4. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, Every joint connected with the supply. So again, he's still using a figure where he employs in this body joints. I did write to a friend once that I thought there was need for 
some Christian osteopaths to get going with the church of the body. For the many joints seem to have got out of gear. I think that's what we do see too. They're not functioning as they should. And in both cases, it's relationship to the head which is so important. So I'm going to plead with you friends. Don't give up a truth because one or two passages seem to be taking something from you. The shadow and the substance. But a body with head and members. If anybody else wants to take it from you, well, they can't. You, you, you've got it in your book. Don't be stampeded. After all said and done, I and anybody else you think of is a man whose breath is in his nostrils. Think of that sometimes, friends. I remember once somebody saying to me, I was going to a town in Scotland, and they said, you go in there? Mr. So-and-so's there. I said, goodness me, he's a man with breath in his nostrils like I am. You treat some of these folks like that a bit and stick to your book till you see it for yourself. And it won't do you any harm and it won't do the other man any harm either. So I feel. But the point I'm, I'm going to arrive at is that in all this squabble we may be missing the most essential feature altogether. Chapter 1 of Ephesians. He has gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body but we don't stop there. The fullness of him that fitteth all in all. That's the ultimate title of this church. When this church is complete, it is not called a body. It is not called a body. It's done its work, that figure. A figure that you could use and set aside. But when it does reach its zenith, it's got this most astounding title. The fullness of him who in his turn fills all. That's something to stagger you. That's something to hold on to. So if somebody says to you, you needn't teach now anything about the church which is the body, say thank you for nothing, I'm going to teach you about the church which is the fullness of him that fitteth all in all. You, you can't lose that. That is yours. And I think you'll find it long last, it covers all the terms that are used in any way you translate it. You've lost nothing. You've gained. Well now another feature, I'm only touching these things, I'm not pretending that in any sense they are complete, they're more or less throwing out hints to those who Berean-like may take the hint and search and see. In Ephesians 3, I meet some people who say that the mystery is not something which is so essentially peculiar that what you can't find it in the Old Testament. A favourite proof of the mystery is that Eliezer went and sought a wife for Isaac and they say there's a proof of the mystery. It's a proof to them, but it's no proof to me. But the reason why they seem to get a, a start over this is where we read in Ephesians 3 these words. The mystery, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed. They say, there you are. Paul himself is saying that it's revealed now in a fuller measure than it was once before. But the question you must ask is, what is he speaking about? So will you look at the first verse and consider it in its context? Chapter 3 For this cause And you'll notice that after he said this first verse he seems to stop. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles and he never finishes that. It's an introduction. And he doesn't pick it up again until verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father. 
Now, chapter 2 ends with a figure of a temple. A habitation or a dwelling place of God. The revised text reads, a dwelling place for Christ in spirit. Christ in spirit. Now, for this cause, a dwelling place for Christ in spirit, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You see his point? It's one thing to belong to a company that is a dwelling place for Christ. He says, don't you be satisfied with that. You pray that you may have an experimental knowledge of it too. But you see, when he started to say that, he said too much. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. I suppose he mentally saw a sort of look go over the face of his reader as much as to say, well, I don't quite follow you, Paul. I thought you were the apostle. He said, I am. I still am. But I never have been called a prisoner of Jesus Christ to this moment as a title. Means something. And I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Not merely for Jew and Gentile, for you Gentiles. Here's another claim. Well, how is he going to prove this? How can he prove this thing which was between himself and his Lord? I think we can go back to a story in the Gospels to give you a little idea of the way in which Paul approached this problem. There was a certain man brought into the presence of our Saviour, sick of the palsy. And he had been curing such a number that they expected that he would simply do the same thing again. But the moment had come to make another step. These miracles don't come in haphazard order. There's first of all touching physical, then there's touching the things of sin, then there's touching the things of death. You watch it in groups. Now this person is brought before him and instead of healing him, he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Oh, said they, the Jews sitting round. Oh, this man's blaspheming. No one can forgive sins but God. So the Saviour said, Now, which is easier? Which is easier for me to say? Son, thy sins be forgiven thee, or rise up and take up a bed and walk. Well, if I were put to the test, I could say to you, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Nobody would know. But if I said, rise up and walk, and you couldn't, you would know, wouldn't you? So he said, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Now, he said, I'll say to the sick of the palsy, rise up and walk. And if God permits that miracle, there's your answer. So said Paul, I'm assuming that you heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me, to you, Lord, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, the mystery. No qualification. Not the mystery of resurrection, the mystery of Israel's blindness, or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. No, the mystery par excellence. So a remarkable thing, isn't it? That the only alpine club in the world that doesn't have to give its derivation is the British one. They have to have a Swiss alpine club and a French alpine club, but the alpine club happened to be the first. And here there's no need to have any description. The mystery. Now he said, how easy it is for anybody to come to you and say, I have received a revelation of a secret never made known before. I should imagine that sort of thing has been said in Los Angeles 
over and over and over again, wouldn't you? Any long-haired man or short-haired woman can stand up and say, I've received a revelation and any, any amount start building temples for them and there the money comes rolling in. But he said, in order that you may realize my claim is true, I'll ask you, that you to consider what I wrote a for in a few words. Now then, this is important. This is an epistle that was lost and therefore we haven't got the explanation. Is that the meaning? I can't believe that God would put an explanation here which if we could only read it would solve our problem and then he couldn't watch over it and save it for us. Have you never written a letter of several pages and then said more or less as I wrote just now or I wrote before? Are you necessarily always referring to some other letter? I wouldn't be at all surprised occasionally. You've said something on the first page, and by the time you get to the fourth page, you say, well, what I said just now, well, if you didn't do it, you might do it. And so here, he says, as I wrote a four in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. All sharing in this. Any amount of apostles knew this. Any amount of prophets knew this. But he said, I'm challenging you to discover any writing in any part of the Bible that touches the mystery of Christ as I have done. Now, what is the mystery of Christ? It's the mystery of the unfolding of the ages from Genesis 3, the seed of the woman and the serpent's head and all the way through Isaiah adds a bit, Jeremiah adds a bit, Daniel adds a bit. They're all adding a bit. And then said Paul, but where will you read anything comparable to the fact that he was raised far above all principality and power and ascended up far above all heavens? That's Christ. So you will see that he refers in chapter 1, in verse 22, to Psalm 8. And he hath put all things under his feet. Now you know that's a quotation from Psalm 8. I want you to turn to Psalm 8, if you will, because there are one or two features there which is of importance in this connection. First of all, we'll look and see what it says about the things that were put under the feet of the one mentioned in Psalm 8. Verse 6. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea, they are the specified things that are put under his feet. When Paul comes along, he doesn't need, he doesn't speak of sheep and oxen and bird and fish. He speaks about principalities, powers, thrones, dominion, and every name that is named. He says, you find anywhere an exposition of the mystery of Christ that suddenly changes from bird and beast to angelic powers. Now the next thing. And here I'll have to go careful because it's such an involved question. But if you notice the construction of a psalm, we've got a heading at the top. Then we've got the whole psalm, like that. And then we've got a piece at the bottom. Then another psalm comes along, and then we've got the whole psalm and a piece at the bottom. Well, unfortunately, the, the authorised version has done that. 
instead of doing that. And so we've got the last bit of the psalm, the top of the next psalm, all the way down. And if you want this worked out, you'll see a book by Dr. Circle who set the whole thing out, but I dare not embark on that, but you'll see its bearing in a moment. At the, at the uh, head of Psalm 9, we have the word, Upon Muslaban. Upon Muslaban. Well, that is really the last little bit, the subscription of Psalm 8. Doesn't belong to Psalm 9, that ought to belong to Psalm 8. That's the underneath bit. So, first of all, we say, all right then, Upon Muslaban belongs to Psalm 8. Well, what's Muslaban mean? Well, people have experimented on it. And when I began to look at this, I said, now, I wonder why they, they've, they've said upon Muslaban. And when I looked and they found it was Almus, oh, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's something here. Um, in the 45th Psalm, we've got something similar. 45th Psalm. And at the, at, over the Psalm 46, we've got a song upon Alamoth. Upon Alamoth again, you see. Alamoth. This, this again is the concluding of Psalm 45. Now, will you notice the next thing? In Psalm 45, we have verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Where is that quoted? Hebrews 1. Psalm 8. Thou madest him to be, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honour. Where is that quoted? Psalm 2, uh, Hebrews 2. Oh, it's coming. These two Psalms that have got the word Alamoth are quoted in, in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2. The next thing is this. When you turn to the Greek version of the Old Testament, over this very psalm and these two psalms, it's got the words, the secrets of the Son. S-O-N. Now that's the mystery of Christ, the secrets of the Son. It's been waiting for everybody to look at all these years. The Septuagint put their finger on it and told you that Alamoth meant the secret thing. It's the basis of the word which is translated ages and forever in the Old Testament. Something hidden and secret. It's translated virgins over Psalm 46 because in the Hebrew East the virgin was secluded until the time of her marriage. She was covered a bit. And the whole thing is waiting for us to see that the psalm itself is telling you here are the secrets of the son, then. So the apostle said, you find anywhere in the scriptures where beasts, fish, and fowls suddenly change into archangels and principalities under the glorious revelation that's been given concerning the secret of Christ. And so he says, I challenge you now to make that comparison. Well, I think we may have done. I won't go into, into that any further because it is rather complicated and our time is whizzing. Chapter 1, uh, chapter 3, we'll go, we'll go back again now. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, or I must stop. Because I hope you heard that the dispensation of the grace of God has been given to me by revelation, and that a mystery was included. Now to prove this, I would like you to test what I've written in the a few words in the past. Have put all things under his feet. 
These words, quoted from Psalm 8, are found in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Hebrews 2 and nowhere else. Paul's the only one who refers to them. I think it's due to him then and to us just to see what he said. Hebrews 2. Verse 7. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour. Did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, no sheep and oxen here. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. And so on. And 1 Corinthians 15, to get the other passage. And there he's speaking of Christ as the second man, of the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, verse 27, For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. There he keeps on at this point, that Psalm 8, means infinitely more than appears on the surface. Well now, I think for the remainder of our time, and so much of it is already gone, we'll come to Ephesians 1, just for a, a very slight skim through the opening section of this great epistle. The disposition of subject matter in this epistle is important. It could be set out something like this. And then we have a little bit there. A little pointer like that. I don't know whether you use those scales today very much, but I remember when I was a boy and I had to go and get the grocery, it was always so much black tea and then an ounce of two shilling green. And you've got the little scales from down and there they were weighed and thrown up. Well, there it is. Now that word in the middle, worthy, is a word which indicates balance. The Apostle uses it in Romans the 8th chapter. He says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. That's the way it's translated. Not worthy to be compared. And he's so concerned about this worthiness that in each of the three great prison epistles, he puts it. That's the first thing we must do then. Chapter 4 of Ephesians. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He gives as many chapters to the walk that's worthy as to the revelation of the truth of the mystery. And as someone has said, and said among our own friends, it's a sad thing to know this, that as any amount of those who believe dispensational truth will spend a lot of time on chapters 1, 2 and 3 and then they say, well, nobody wants to bother about four, five, and six. And that's where we're getting. Mere doctrinaires. The greatest section in Ephesians is not dealing with a mystery, but with your home, friends, your home. The relationship of husband and wife, of parent and child, of master and servant, takes more space in the epistle to the Ephesians than the revelation of the mystery. And you mean to tell me that's, that's negligible? That's where the fault lies. You cannot possibly enter into the truth of the mystery if you wouldn't like somebody to come home to tea one of these days. That's the way in which I ask people sometimes when they're taking this line. Would you like me to come home and ask a few questions? Because I wouldn't do it. 
We ought to be able to have our life investigated. Or there's something sadly wrong. So worthy. Now the next epistle. Philippians 1. Verse 27. Only let your conversation, and that means your manner of life, to do with the fact that you belong to an organized company, a city. Only let your conversation be as it becometh. That's the word worthy. Pity it's not there, isn't it? As it becometh worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a manner of life it would be, friends, wouldn't it? If it could possibly be worthy, if it could possibly balance the gospel of Christ with all that the gospel means. The life and death of the Son of God. The love of God sending him. Worthy. Not that we merit it. Just balancing. And then the third uh, occurrence is Colossians chapter 1. Verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. So there's a threefold emphasis upon the necessity for some balance between our doctrine and our manner of life. That's what the Apostle said about himself. That's what he wishes to say about you and me. Now you will find that there are seven items of doctrine balanced by seven items of practice. One is an easy one to demonstrate. Fitly framed together. Fitly joined together. In the, in the second chapter, it's a temple. Fitly framed together. In the fourth chapter, it's a body. Fitly joined together. And it's no new st- statement to liken a temple to a body. The Lord himself did so. And the Corinthians were told so. But I won't put all the seven there. But you'll be able perhaps to puzzle these things out and see their marvellous arrangement. Now let us concentrate the next few minutes on verses 3 to 14. And again I'll use the board while you're looking at the, at the passage before you so that we can exhibit, even though we're not able to deal with all the details of this section which means so much to us. I call the first section the will of the Father. That is uh, one to six. No, three to six, because the opening verses are the just for the whole uh, epistle. Then we have from verse seven the work, the redemptive work of the Son, and that would be seven to twelve. And then we have, just by way of keeping these, the seal or the earnest or we can say the witness of the Spirit. That's 13 and 14. But, to help us to see that these divisions are so, we have to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. That helps to set it down. I said once in a meeting years ago that you could compare the structure of this section to a hymn. And at the end of the verse, you add a little refrain to the praise of his glory. Well, the next week, somebody came to the meeting and says, there's your hymn. And we sing it. We've got it in our hymn book. 
Blessed be our God and Father, who such wondrous love hath shown, choosing us in Christ our Saviour, ere the world was overthrown. We shall see him face to face, praise the glory of his grace. It's all right, isn't it? Then he goes on about, blessed be our Lord Christ Jesus, God's own well-beloved Son, and speaks about the redemption which he has accomplished. Praise the glory of his grace. Threefold cord which naught can sever, the Father's will, the, the Saviour's work, the Spirit's witness. So, I don't expect everybody's coming forward with hymns, and if they do, we can't print them all, but that was an endeavour to show the construction in a simple way. Well, now you see, if you look at the first verses, there's no reference to sin, no reference to salvation, no reference to redemption, no reference to faith. It's the will of the Father before the foundation of the world. <coughs> Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. That's the way it starts. And that's what moved me this morning when the meeting started with a benediction instead of waiting to the end. That's what we ought to do. We've got so much that we start praising God at the beginning. We don't wait. Blessed be God, who hath blessed us. Makes me think of a, a statement of a, a, an old couple. They'd hardly got, they've got very little to live on, live very poorly, but they belong to the Lord. And somebody's tried to excite a bit of, uh, a little bit of envy. They spoke about people who went riding by their little home with their cars. And this old chap said, well, he said, God is my Father. Christ is my Saviour. Heaven is my home. They can have the rest. <laughs> that includes Cadillacs and all these other names I've seen. Yes, they can have the rest. You see? He couldn't excite envy. He said, blessed be God, what do I want? I've got Christ, and Christ is all and in all. That's where we've got to get presently, friends, sometime or other. And the word blessed, of course, means to speak well of, it's a word which we use when you read in the newspaper there was a meeting of some society and after they dined well and perhaps wined as well somebody stood up and made a eulogistic speech about somebody or the other. Eulogism. This is the word. But it means it here. But look what it says. We speak well of God. But don't forget he's spoken well of us. Fancy that. Fancy that. And the speaking well of us leads right on to the end of the section. He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. I'm missing out a lot. But he's concentrating on that. And you know that word accepted occurs nowhere else except in one of the Gospels. I think it's in Luke's Gospel where the angel comes to the Virgin Mary and says, Hail thou highly favoured among women. That's the word God uses of you and me outside Gentiles. He said he's made you highly favoured. In the beloved. What a position. And then immediately, the next move, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Do remember this, friends, that you can never get so spiritual, you can never get so high up in the blue, that you can dispense with the blood of Christ. There is no portion of the scriptures which leaves it out. You take the sevenfold division of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, the psalms, the gospels, the acts, the epistles and the revelation and every one of them is pledged to redemption by the blood of Christ. There's no higher standing in the New Testament than Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians. 
And in those two epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, it's stressed. The blood of his cross. The blood of Christ. It may not be a very nice term. I'll admit it. But neither is sin or death. It meant something to the one who shed that blood. And we've got to remember it. In whom we have redemption. Through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. This word forgiveness is translated to set the captive free in Luke 4. It's a release word. But there's another word for redemption when we come to the witness of the Spirit. Two aspects of redemption. Verse 14. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now the two figures that you want to study to get a little insight into the two aspects of redemption which come here in Ephesians 1 is first of all the Passover which led them out of the house of bondage took them across the Red Sea, delivered them, and then the book of Ruth, which speaks about the kinsman redeemer who restored a forfeited inheritance. Um, How much time have I got left? All I want. Well, I'll go on until I can't go any longer then. All right. Now, if I could have a little bit longer, I'm going to turn you back to that precious little book, the book of Ruth. Now, don't say, oh, I thought we were going to have some more of Ephesians. You will, in that glorious time. Telling you what it means to have a kinsman redeemer to bring an inheritance back that you forfeited and lost. And if that doesn't touch your heart, I don't know what will. I don't know what's going to happen to all these things that are whizzing round about. Go on. Oh, good, thank you. Well, all right, thank you. Well, then I think we can just about do it. The book of Ruth. I get just a little dispensation and the last lap to go on a trifle longer. As I said, I think earlier, my union will not permit me to speak more than eight consecutive hours at any time. (laughs) Now, the book of Ruth. I hope you have it in front of you. If you can't find it, uh, well, discover it by the index because I have been in meetings, I don't say here, where people have been looking at me with it open, I know full well it's somewhere here. Now, that won't do. Don't cheat yourself, friends. <laughs> now, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, now here's the point, there's no more terrible pe- period of Israel's history when the judges ruled and then these people failed. You read the book of Judges. And yet, in that time, is this precious little story. It's a rebuke to us when we get so down and out that we take the pessimistic view. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the name of his two sons Marlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And the reason why they left Bethlehem was because they had no bread. It's rather strange the word Bethlehem means the house of bread, doesn't it? They left the house of bread to go to the Moab to get it. There may be something in that. Now we're told that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years, and then the two men died. Yes, three widows left. And then Naomi felt that 
that it was time she went back to her own land. She learned that the Lord had visited his people, giving them bread. And so she said, told the two daughters-in-law that she was going to return. And she said to them, verse 8, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you may that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So she was suggesting to them that they shouldn't remain widows. They should go back and be married. Um, I think it's a figure of speech that you might, might find rest. I don't think these women found very much rest when they got married, but they were ten times worse off if they didn't, so it was a matter of two evils. <laughs> that was the way in which they put it. Or friends, you don't realise, you don't realise what Christ has done to the women. If ever there's anybody in this congregation who ought to thank God for the Son of God, it's the women. Oh, I'm speaking in a land where the women are supposed to be on the top, aren't they? Now, they told me that the husband was the head and the wife was the neck that made him say yes or no, so he doesn't know. <laughs> but I'm going, to, I'm going to quote from memory a passage in the book of Galatians. It says, those who have been baptised into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither bond nor free. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither male nor female. Now, what you may not know is this, that if you open a Jewish prayer book, or if you attended a Jewish service, every person in that congregation would stand up and say, O Lord our God, King of the universe, I thank thee that I was not born a Gentile. O Lord our God, King of the universe, I thank thee I was not born a slave. O Lord our God, King of the universe, I thank thee I was not born a woman. And a boy at twelve, whose mind is plastic, has started to say that because he attends a synagogue service responsible all his life. You think what Christ did to block those out. Well, if I go on with the sides like that, we should want more than twenty minutes, right? Well, now, she said, I... She kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And But they said, oh no, we, we will come. She said, now look, now you must, mustn't mind her speaking a little bit plainly. Uh, we've got into such a condition that we either use these questions with regard to marriage and sex, so that it makes you blush, or we cover them up as though it's something that we ought not to speak about. Well, the Bible doesn't take either view. It's got a bit more sense about it. And Naomi said, Verse 11. Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? We wouldn't talk like that today. But she said, you see, you're in a predicament. If you're coming under the law of Moses, as you will do if you come back to Bethlehem, you won't have an option of marrying anybody you like. There's a law that says, if a man dies and there's no children, his husband's brother must marry that widow and restore the name of the man that he's dead. She said, you know what you're in for if you do that. So, you, you just stop that. Would you wait? Would you wait until they grew up? You see, it's no, it doesn't sound reasonable to us to talk like that, but it was according to the law here. So again, it says in verse 14, they lifted up their voice and wept again. And all kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. I've got suspicion about people who do a lot of kissing like that, aren't you? I'd rather have Ruth and Orpah after all, wouldn't you? 
Yes. Don't uh, don't throw these things about too cheaply. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return now after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Oh, what blessed words these are, they'll live till time is no more. Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, there will I be buried. The Lord do so to thee, and more also, if aught the death part thee and thee. Wonderful, isn't it? So they go back together. Now we'll miss the bit, we can't help it, chapter 2. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimedek, and his name was Boaz. Now this kinsman is the important feature. Let me remind you that every occurrence of the word Redeemer in the Old Testament, every single occurrence of the Redeemer is the kinsman. Even though you read Isaiah, that the Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, it's the kinsman. Even though it says he's the mighty God of Jacob, it's the kinsman. Even though it says it's the Creator himself, it's the kinsman. Well, you say, here, where are we getting? How can God himself be a kinsman to me? Isaiah says, I'll tell you. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Mighty God, El Gibor, here's Emmanuel, God with us. There's your Redeemer, and if you haven't got that Redeemer, you haven't got the scriptural one. God manifest in the flesh. So Boaz is the king's man. Now, look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And oh, it is so wonderful to see Naomi didn't try to help God out. Oh, how many times people have put out their hand to save the ark of God. You think of Abraham and Sarah. They were promised a son when it was past age. <clears throat> and then of all the things, they waited for ten years and nothing happened. So if I could go into that house and see them, I know what happened. Sarah said to Abraham, you know, we are a pair of old fools. We haven't understood. There's the very law of the land in which we live that says, if I give you Abraham, my handmaid, that's just as good. And so they helped God out and Ishmael was born. Most of us have got an Ishmael about somewhere because we've tried to help God out. But Naomi, oh, blessed be God, she didn't whisper. So she simply said, go, my daughter. Verse 3, and she went and came and gleaned in the field of the reapers and her hat. It meant, it's twice over. A hat happened. Just happened. It just happened. You know some happenings, don't you, like that? If ever there was a hand of God outstretched at that particular moment in your life and mine, there was no happening about it, neither was there here. She got all the gleaning fields in front of her. Which should she go to? What directed her steps? We don't know. We know she went to the right one. And she went to the field that belonged to Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And he made inquiries about her, and he began to realise that there was some thing here that interested him. And so he said, let a few handfuls fall on purpose, so that when she takes a gleaning, she'll have a good Aprilful, when she went back and showed the amount that she received, verse 18, 
The mother-in-law said, Where hast thou been today? And where wrotest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought and said, Now I don't know whether she said it casually, but it sounds like it. She didn't know. She said, Oh, I think the man's name was Boaz. She said, No, Boaz! That's what I expected. Naomi said, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. Oh, well, wait a minute. How could Boaz in Bethlehem do anything to the men who were dead and buried in Moab? Well, we couldn't think anything could be, but they did. This man's the man who's going to restore the name of the dead and the inheritance will be back again. All said, no, I see it coming. I suppose she was like most of the ladies. She was keen on a marriage to be arranged, but she saw it coming. She said, this is the hand of the Lord. So chapter 3, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee? Same figure of speech. But I believe it was a little bit nearer the truth when Boaz was in view, that it may be well with thee. Now she said, I'll tell you something. Boaz, now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens you were? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. And in that country, when once they started winnowing and threshing, they slept there till it was done. Because if they didn't, it wouldn't be there when they went next morning. Robbers would be there. So it was the custom, easy to do in that climate, to sleep out all night until the hole was harvested in. So she gave a little instruction to her daughter, Ruth. She said in verse 3, Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, that's rather fine, isn't it? You see, I've met people who think that when you're spiritual, you never make yourself look anything except sort of a thump. But she said, look here, you're going to see a possible husband. Now, wash yourself. Anoint yourself. Put your raiment on. Oh, don't deck yourself up like, you know, but that's reasonable. Be decent. You know, I believe I'm responsible at least for one lady having a white wedding. I hope it won't be held against me in that day. But I could see her heart was grieving because she thought to be spiritually minded she got to look like nothing on earth. So I said, well, I says, the Old Testament says the bride adorns herself for a bridegroom. If they do it out of a good heart, don't think God's looking down and say, ah, ha, ha. That's what we've got a conception of God which is very wrong. It depends on the heart far more than the external. Well, anyhow. Now she said, I'm going to tell you a strange thing. It does sound strange to our ears, but it was all right in Ruth's day. She said, It shall be when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet. Fancy telling a girl to do that. And lay thee down. And then she said, He will tell thee what thou shalt do, for he'd know what she was doing. He'd realise the claim she was making. And then she added another bit of wisdom. She said, Oh, and then Ruth said very obediently, All that thou sayest unto thee, I will do. Verse 7. Oh, and earlier, I forgot to mention this, in verse 3. She says, Don't make yourself known to him until he have done eating and drinking. Looks as though the nature of the beast hasn't changed much all these years, has it? <laughs> and so, there he was, he finished his light meal. He went to lie down. She came softly 
uncovered his feet and lay down. And it came to pass at midnight he turned himself and said, or turned himself, the word seems to express as though in Hebrew he would say, oh good gracious me, I don't know how he would say it, but something like that, a woman sighed at my feet. And he said, who art thou? She said, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou hast the right to redeem. Thou art a near kinsman. She made the claim. And he realised what she was doing. He commended her for what she was doing. He said, you haven't run after a lot of young men. I'm a bit older than you might expect. He said, now, I must let you in, let you in the one little piece of this. Verse 12, it's true that I'm a, a kinsman, but there's one nearer than I am. Oh, I think Ruth's heart went down a bit like that. I wonder who this other kinsman is. I believe this is a part of the story. There is a near kinsman, that is to say, ourselves, that the scripture says, no man can by any means redeem his brother. But this nearer kinsman's given his chance to see if he can, and when he cannot, then the way's clear. So we come to chapter 4. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Hold such an one, turn aside, sit down here. He turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city. They formed a sort of quorum. They sat down. He hailed the kinsman, and he said, Naomi, selleth a parcel of land, and I thought to advertise thee. The first occurrence of advertising in the known literature of the world. Buy it, therefore. And he said, I will. I will redeem it. Very interesting piece of land. I think love had made Boaz a little bit artful. Because he said, oh, wait a minute. What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon the inheritance. Oh, he said, if that's the case, I cannot do it, but I shall mar my own. Then the way was over. The contract was made, the wedding was completed, and in good time, Ruth became the ancestress of David and comes into the very pedigree of Christ. Now all that little story is impinging on the work of a kinsman redeemer. An inheritance lost forever because it was dead, the people were dead. But Boaz restored that inheritance, raised up the name of the man who was dead and if anyone was going to lose it again, it was not Ruth, it was Boaz. Now his name means strong. And if anyone's going to lose my inheritance, it's the Lord himself and not me. And I haven't got any doubts of that of you. Well now, what can I do, friends? I've touched upon a few items. <coughs> I wish I could have gone, gone into them more intimately. But you'll understand that there are limits. I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity of speaking to you these state series of meetings. I don't ask you to accept all the points of view I've given you. I only put them to you honestly as far as I see. And I ask you to exercise the Berean spirit, to test all things by the word. If you cannot make up your mind, don't be stampeded. Wait rather. Wait upon the Lord. But don't wait because you wanted to compromise. <coughs> the worst thing that can happen is for you to see the truth and then put off 
for a more convenient season because you don't like to tell some of your friends or your pastor or whatever it is. But if you do, there'll come a moment when you won't be interested. The day will have passed. Acknowledge what you see. And as you acknowledge, so the Lord will give you more. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord.